Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Potomac Perspective. I'm Neil Shapiro, Head of Communications at Stiefel, joined as always by Brian Gardner in Washington. And of course, Brian is our Chief Washington Policy Strategist here at Stiefel. Brian, it's good to see you. Neil, good to see you. It's good to be with you. Yeah, we've got the big, you know, before baseball season started, if we would have circled this date on the calendar, it would have been very exciting, sort of Subway Series Part 2. But what we're faced with instead are two last place teams, essentially. Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's um, it's been a very disappointing few weeks with Aaron Judge on the DL and the Yankees offense pretty much there with him. Um, but it's all right. Um, look, uh, training camp for the NFL is about to open up and uh, the Giants uh, just re-signed Saquon Barkley this morning uh, for a one year deal. So there's good right. there. And, you know, Neil, I know you're not much of a golf fan, but. I mean, I uh, and it wasn't the most traumatic tournament of all time, but I, you know, we're coming out of Open Championship weekend and Brian Hartman's win. Um, it was just a good win. It was uh, it was fun to watch a guy who's been on the tour for a long time, who's been grinding for a long time uh, to to see all that hard work pay off. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, baseball for you and I and uh, our St. Louis colleagues has not been good, uh, mm-hmm. but um you got to enjoy some outstanding golf um, this past weekend, a great champ, and uh, have uh, a football season to look forward to. So not all is lost. No, that's true. And I know we have a lot to get to, so we won't waste too much more time on this. But I will give all of our loyal listeners a, pl- um, a recommendation. And I, don't, I you and I didn't talk about this, so I don't know if you've been watching. But um, when you're done, of course, listening to Potomac Perspective and you have some free time, um, I strongly recommend the Netflix series quarterbacks. Have you been watching? I have not. Have it is really good. It is really good. I think Kirk Cousins is now my new favorite NFL player. He's one of the three quarterbacks featured. Um, but it's really good. So if anybody out there is looking for something to binge on, there's eight episodes. I'm through six of them. And I strongly recommend it for anyone who's a football fan. Really good. I will have to check that out. Well, let, let, right. Let's get to politics and policy. Yeah. Let's do that. And, you know, you know, Brian, it's interesting because we are here's this is the great segue that I'm going to make. So we do have football season coming that starts in September. And I know you and I have talked before about the possibility of a government shutdown in the fall in that September, October window, right when football season is getting going. And I know there's been some more talk, some fresh talk about whether or not this might actually happen. What is the latest? Well, you know, Neil, some people do consider politics a contact sport. So uh, mm-hmm. it, it is a good Oh, for sure. Yeah, for yep. sure. You ever watch House of Cards? Yeah, yes. Uh, at least the first couple of seasons. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Congress is continuing to work on the 12 appropriations bills that they need to pass um, by September 30th, which is when the, the federal government's fiscal year ends. Um, if those bills are not passed by that deadline, then parts of the government would shut down, would shut down. Um, there are some conservatives in the House that are pressing for spending levels in these appropriations bills to be below the caps that were agreed to in the debt ceiling agreement a couple of months ago. Um, those lower spending levels are not going to pass the Senate and even the House. I, I have questions whether they could pass the House because some moderate Republicans might also oppose the, those lower spending levels. Um, same time, you have the conservatives who are pressing Speaker McCarthy um, to, to hold out and get those lower spending levels. Um, so McCarthy may not have a lot of room to maneuver. You know, conservatives could try and oust McCarthy from the speakership if they don't get what they want. 
Um, now, alternatively, if we get into late September and there's no longer term agreement, Congress could pass a temporary spending bill um, that's been done before and it's been floated again. Um, but, you know, I I'm even questioning whether conservatives would go along with that um, because that may not be good enough for them. Um, so, look, we still have two months to go before a shutdown. And obviously, in, the in these two months, things can change. But at this point, you know, I think the odds of a shutdown are are relatively high. Well, that that would I can't imagine that is good news for the markets. So, you know, I, I think people I think investors have to keep all this in context. Um, so when we talk one, when we talk about a government shutdown, it's not a full shutdown, right? Essential government services continue. Um, the military continues to do its job. Air traffic controllers show up for work. Uh, entitlement checks go out. Um, government salaries don't get paid. Mm. Um, and payments to some contractors probably don't get made. And I don't mean to belittle that. Um, but once those, once a deal to reopen the government is reached, those payments are made whole. Um, so no one loses out. Uh, so the, the economic impact is really mostly to delay economic activity, not, not eliminate it entirely. Uh, and I think because of that, equity markets typically don't react violently to shutdowns. This is different from a debt ceiling situation. So I think the overall market narrative that is in place probably remains in place despite the, you know, the, the headlines of shutdown. Um, you know, in fact, if you look back to the last shutdown, I think it was the last shutdown, it was a 34 day shutdown lasting from De uh, December of 2018 into January of 2019. And the market actually gained 10% during that shutdown. Now, look, is that an extreme example? Yes, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. Markets don't always go up that much during a shutdown. But I think that it does emphasize the point that investors shouldn't panic over the shutdown headlines that you that could that they could be seeing when uh, September rolls. Yeah. And there's a lot of other factors that, um, to your point, that could weigh on the markets positively or negatively, um, you know, besides this. Um, maybe So maybe it's not a fair comparison. Um, all right. Other news in Congress. Um, we've talked before also about a defense bill. Um, I know they've been working on their annual piece of legislation. Anything, any updates on, on that? So I think a lot of the press attention has been paid to um, uh, focus on the debates in the House over cultural issues in the military, as well as funding for Ukraine. Um, those are important, but they're not necessarily relevant for investors. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the fact that the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, is working its way through, um, that's a good thing, um, but not necessarily market moving in, in from a macro sense. But I do think NDAA is potentially relevant for investors uh, in a couple of sectors. So first in financials, um, Senators Durbin and Marshall have been trying to attach a, their Credit Card Competition Act, which is a bill that would mandate that credit card transactions be routed over at least two unaffiliated networks. Uh, if the Senate added the Durbin bill to the NDAA, something that Durbin's trying to get, um, it could generate negative headlines for the credit card companies. 
Now, look, I, I think the odds are against Durbin, the Durbin bill, I should say, being added to the NDAA. And I should note, um, Senator Durbin is actually out this week with COVID, yeah. which makes it adding his legislation to the NDAA even harder. Um, but this, this issue bears watching. So the financial sector should be paying attention to that. Uh, a little bit longer term, uh, NDAA also has uh, the potential to be a, a vehicle for the Safe Banking Act, something we have talked a lot about in the past. Yeah. We'll probably continue to talk about again. Um, and SAFE would allow banks to serve the cannabis industry without violating federal anti-money rules. Um, uh, it, the NDAA has been a potential vehicle for SAFE in the past. It's never worked out, but they're going to look at it again. Um, I don't think it's going to be added to the bill right now, um, but later in the year, after the House and the Senate each pass their respective versions, and then they negotiate with each other on a compromise bill, that's when SAFE could be added. Um, now, it, it seems to have run into the bill, the, the SAFE bill, bill has um, seems to have run into another hurdle. Um, this is related to language in the bill about restricting regulators from reenacting Operation Choke Point. Um, that's something where banking regulators went in and, and pressured uh, financial service institutions against serving uh, companies that were in legal, but let's call it undesirable um, mm -hmm. or politically unpopular uh, sectors. Um, that that language has been in the bill, and some Democrats may be pushing to to weaken that or or get it out, and that that that's going to hold up safe uh, again, uh, at least in the short term. But NDAA and safe, it's something I'll be looking at uh, after Labor Day. Got it. Um, another thing that a lot of our um, folks here at Stiefel and KBW and throughout the, the company are following um, is the Biden administration's updated antitrust guidelines that were proposed this week. Lots of implications, I would think, for M&A activity. Uh, what do you think we need to know about this? Yeah, so I'm going to talk about this at a very high level because um, the, the, it's a proposal for new merger guidelines. There are actually 13 individual guidelines within the package, so there's a lot to cover. Um, so let me just hit a couple of key points and, and highlight some key takeaways. So the, the, the biggest one is the, the new guidelines would make mergers more difficult. Um, mm -hmm. and that, that's obviously the intent. Of and they're already it's already taking a lot longer to get a merger through. Yes. Yep. Um, so this is on top of that. This would add to that. Um, so the proposal would lower the Herfindahl-Hirschman index, the HHI, which is a very common uh, term for people in uh, in the M&A world. Um, that's the threshold for presuming that a, a merger is anti-competitive, and they would lower that threshold. Um, so um, so that's that's the that's the first. Um, uh, it it looks like the the guidelines would also target roll-up strategies at various firms and put kind of serial acquirers, companies that do lots of acquisitions, they're going to come, they would come under closer scrutiny. Um, there's also a guideline that looks at minority investments and partial investments and mm -hmm. whether these investments impact the competitiveness of other firms owned by the same investor. Same, say some investor has minority interests in two firms in the same sector. Does that common ownership impact the competitive fervor within those two mm -hmm. companies? Um, so that that would be an issue for private equity. Absolutely, spot on. Um, mm -hmm. So um, so that it, even though interestingly enough, private equity is never mentioned in the guidelines. That yes. that particular guideline clearly 
has private equity mm -hmm. uh, as a focus. Um, and then I, I should also note that the, the guidelines would also look at a merger's impact on labor markets. And that's a new factor. And I don't think anybody really knows how that would play out. Um, but it's interesting that uh, a, a new focus, a formal focus on labor. And all, so all this. What do, mean, what do you mean by that? Like, like whether jobs would be lost? Uh, potentially, yes. Yeah. Um, sure. Does it does it make the the does it make the labor market more or less competitive? I it's see. Not, not not just whether jobs would be lost, but does it make it yeah. harder for people to move around? Does the labor market become more or less competitive? I see. Um, and and you know, all of this is consistent with the administration's work over the last two two and a half years kind of overturn existing antitrust law. The, the antitrust law of the past 40 plus years um, has essentially looked at whether or not uh, consumers benefit from a merger. Um, the administration has been working to change that. And the, the, the proposal is very much in line with that work. Yeah. But, but to be clear, these guidelines are not automatically in effect at us right now, right? There's there's a procedure that they have to we have to go through. Yep. So it's a proposal. Um, so it's subject to public comments, uh, which are will be for 60 days, uh, which will last into September. And once the public comment period is over, the agencies are going to go review the comments, they have to distill them and consider, you know, how valid the criticisms are. Um and then finalize them uh, uh, in, into a formal final rule. That's probably in mid 2024. I, I suspect they want this done mm -hmm. before the uh, the presidential election. Mm -hmm. um, and after that, let, let's just say they are finalized sometime next year. After that, I expect there's going to be litigation. Um, you know, to my point, the proposal makes some pretty significant changes in antitrust law, and it seeks to reverse these legal precedents that have been controlling for the last 40 plus years. With, and doing so without going through Congress. Uh, it's one thing for Congress to rewrite their law. It's another thing for agencies to rewrite the law. And I think the argument will be that's exactly what the administration is trying to do is rewrite, not um, not just clarify, but rewrite antitrust law. And so th there's some major court fights um, yeah. that, that are going to be on the way once this is all finalized. Seems that way. Um, quickly, Brian, it, this isn't a policy issue, but since we have you here, and this is very much in the news. Um, I've read quite a bit about it this morning. Um, we are starting to see headlines now again about impeachment or possible impeachment. And now we're not talking about Trump. We're talking about Biden. But so I want to get your your take on that and whether or not this is something that the market should pay attention to. But for, you know, I just want to say, I, I mean, I can't remember ever growing up anyone ever talking about impeachment and now it seems to be you know like not a big deal everyone just throws it around like it's you know an everyday common occurrence in washington Do that, you that, 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 that's a key insight right there neil and, I, and i'm going to touch on that um as, as i get into this a little bit so market impact probably very little if any um so let's just step back for a second look at the process what what impeachment is um the house is responsible for impeachments and it's basically an indictment it doesn't mean that the official that is in, is impeached is automatically removed uh that would send the issue to the senate and the senate kind of holds a trial um so some house republicans have been talking about impeaching really three impeachments uh president biden Attorney uh, General Garland and HHS Secretary Mayorkas. 
Um, I'm just going to focus on Biden for now um, because that, that's the big one, obviously, um, and could have if if there is a market impact, this could be where it comes from. So as the story about Hunter Biden's business affairs and the investigation into those uh, affairs continues to evolve, Republicans are increasingly thinking of impeaching the president. So I do think there are political risks for Republicans doing this as 2024 approaches. And my gut tells me Speaker McCarthy would probably prefer to avoid impeachment proceedings. Unless there's, there's some kind of backlash mm-hmm. for voters in 2024. But pressure for action coming from within the GOP base is making avoiding impeachment increasingly difficult. So, as I mentioned, if the House were to impeach the president, um, it goes to the Senate. I don't think markets are going to really react to that news. Investors, I think, at a at a very basic level, think and understand, know that the Senate's not going to remove President Biden from office. Um, they didn't. It, that that was the case with. President Clinton back in 1998. It was the case in both Trump impeachment uh, proceedings. So, you know, to your point, impeachment has become more commonplace over the last 25 years. And I think investors have kind of internalized that. They're becoming more immune to the headlines um, that impeachments tend to generate. So I I have gotten this question occasionally, you know, what do I think the markets are going to do if impeachment occurs. And I, I, I think the, the market reaction is going to be quite muted because for, for the two reasons I just mentioned, just yeah. to conclude, which is, you know, markets have become immune to it. Um, and, and the president's not going to be removed from office. The Senate is not going to, you know, a Democratic Senate um, that needs uh, a supermajority to remove a president. There's no way those votes exist. Yeah. I guess impeachment doesn't hold quite the same weight as it did when I was a senior in high school in AP American history learning about it, where it seemed like it was just, you know, the worst, just unimaginable. Well, I'll, I'll you know, since I am a little bit older, I'll, I'll go back. Uh, my 10th birthday was uh, right when President Nixon was uh, about to resign from office, uh, mm-hmm. which also tells you how old I am. Um mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean that was that was a big deal in 1974. I mean it was it was new, it was different, and look, it was it was clearly leading to the prospect of a president being removed. Um, that was a, that was less the case in 1998. Yeah, it, but there was a chance that, that yeah. President Clinton could be, but I, I don't think it was a it wasn't a great chance. But it was still relatively new and novel. But the novelty's worn off. Um, yeah. For sure. The Clinton exercise removed some of the novelty. And then the two Trump impeachments have just, I think, eviscerated um, the political drama. Well, now it seems like such a partisan threat, right? More than anything else. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of a a Watergate Nixon hangover. Um, That's I I think that that I think the 1970s set off a chain reaction of of political events and political views partisanship in the United States that uh, we're still living with today. But um, again, just to kind of circle back on the, on the relevant question, what does it mean for markets? Probably not enough. Not, not a lot, I should say. Sorry. Well, I'm going to vote that we impeach Buck Showalter. <laughs> um, you know, who holds that trial, Neil? Do the fans hold the trial? Or- I do. It's it's me. I, is, I, that a Steve, is that a Steve Cohn? Is he the judge? No. It's a Potomac perspective. It's Neil. I suggested it here on the podcast, so I'll just rule on it. Okay, I like it. 
I like the initiative. Yeah. All right. Well, Brian, listen, I appreciate you taking the time. We had a lot to go through today. So um, thanks so much again for joining us. Thank you, Neil. And thanks to everybody for listening. We'll be back with another episode of Potomac Perspective in a couple of weeks. Take care.